This is what God's raised us up to do. You know what I want to share tonight is something that this will be a brand new thought to some of you. You may have heard these things, but the concept of making disciples is not a concept that the average Christian has. But this is what God called us to do, and this is what CBC is all about. It's what my whole life is all about. And I believe that this is the only way we are ever going to impact the world is to make disciples and not converts. And there is a huge difference. The body of Christ as a whole has the concept of taking the word, sharing it, seeing a person's life touch, and then they want to go on and touch somebody else. But that is not what Jesus told us to do. Look at this passage over in the 28th chapter of the book of Matthew. For those of you that are familiar with this, this is after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And he had walked on the earth for 40 days after his resurrection. He had appeared to his disciples numerous times. You know, this is really interesting. Jesus never appeared to an unbeliever after he was raised from the dead. Wasn't a single unbeliever. If it would have been me, the first person I'd have appeared to would have been Pilate. I'd have said, are your hands clean now? I'd have gone to those people that blindfolded me and spit in my face and said, prophesy if you're the son of God. I'd have prophesied. You know, everybody in Jerusalem saw him crucified. All he had, would have had to have done is just hover over the city and expose himself to people and say, here I am. And man, he could have had everybody on their face. But the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. God could force every person into recognizing his reality, but that is not the way that God does. He wants us to voluntarily, of our own free will, love him. He doesn't want to twist anybody's arm to make them say, I make you my Lord. And so the Lord never appeared to a single lost person. He only appeared to people that he had already met right before, the night before he died. He spoke to his disciples in John chapter 14, and he says, and whether I go, you know, and the way you know. Now, Jesus had spent three and a half years training these people. And right before he died and was gone, he says, where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And they said, where are you going? <laughs> three and a half years with these guys, and they didn't even know where he was going. And how can we know the way? Did you know that would have been enough to discourage most people? If I spent three years with the student here and I said, all right, now you know what to do. And they say, what do we do? Make me think that we didn't do a very good job, amen. And then when Jesus was being caught up into heaven, man, he was, he was leaving this earth. And his, I'm sure that the angels probably thought, uh, this group of guys right here are the ones you're leaving this with? I mean, there was a reason they were called disciples. I'm sure these angels probably thought, don't you have another, do you have a backup plan for this? Amen. <laughs> Jesus said, this is it. Look at this in Matthew chapter 28. This is right before he was caught up into heaven. Some of his very last words to his disciples. And in verse uh, 16, it says, then the 11 disciples... There was 12 disciples. Judas had hung himself, so there was 11 left. These are talking about his inner circle. The 11 disciples went away 
into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some of these 11 disciples, these aren't the 70, these aren't the multitudes that followed him. These are some of his closest people that he had lived with for three and a half years. They were all at the crucifixion. They had all seen him resurrected. Here he was resurrected and they worshipped him. And yet some of these 11 doubted as they were looking at him. I've got a great message on that. I'm not going to preach it right now, but I've got an hour and a half message on why they doubted because Jesus was in a different form. He was now spiritual, and you couldn't perceive him by just your physical, natural senses. You had to know him by your heart. And they were so carnal. They just, even though they were seeing him, they still couldn't believe. There was doubt among these people. The very last words he was saying to them, some of his own people were doubting. That's amazing. And the reason I bring this up is to say that some of you think, man, I'm, I'm just not sure I'm qualified. Man, look at these guys. This ought to give us hope. This ought to encourage you. And it, and it ought to speak volumes about how Jesus has faith in you. You know, keep your finger here. I'm not through. But look over here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and of course we know Paul was the persecutor of the Christians, killed a lot of Christians, and he was talking about the goodness of God and the grace of God in the first few verses of this first chapter of 1 Timothy, and then he says some people don't preach the goodness, they preach wrath and the law, and he says there's a place for the law, but it's for the unbelievers, for the ungodly and the profane and all of these people, but it is not for those of us who've accepted the grace of God. God placed all of our wrath upon Jesus. And then he said this, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. What a powerful statement that God committed things to the Apostle Paul. You know, most of us wouldn't have done things this way. Most of us would not put confidence and faith in mere humans who were frail, who just moments before he was ready to be caught up into heaven, they were doubting that he was even raised from the dead and they were looking at him. And they were still in doubt. Most of us wouldn't do that. But God committed the gospel unto the Apostle Paul. And he says in verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Did you know God put faith in the Apostle Paul? And he sent Ananias to tell Paul, of the great things that he would suffer and how he would go around the world and he would stand before kings and how he would represent God. And he didn't tell Paul that after Paul had renewed his mind and after Paul had become this great spiritual giant. He told this to Paul the, uh, three days after Paul had been on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. The guy wasn't renewed. He wasn't a spiritual giant. He wasn't any of these things. And yet God put faith in this man who was the greatest persecutor of the Christians. That's amazing. This would be similar in our day. We don't suffer the persecution that Paul did where we actually put people in jail and kill them. 
But this would be equivalent in our day to a person who's an atheist or an agnostic and just hates God and blasphemes God and talks against God. And God says, I could use them. And he picks them and gives them a calling and a purpose. And Paul said that God enabled me because he counted me faithful. You know, this has really ministered to me that if God has faith in me, well then, man, the least I can do is believe in God's faith, trust his judgment. And many of you just don't feel qualified. You, don't, you aren't sure that God wants to do anything special with you. You look at Bible college or, or seeking the Lord full-time as being for those who are super-dupers, as Wendell would like to say. Those who are special, and you just don't see yourself that way. But here is a man who is a persecutor and, and these terrible things, and God counted him faithful and put him in the ministry. And that's what he was doing with his disciples over here in Matthew chapter 28. Some of them didn't even believe he was raised from the dead, and he, he gave them a commission to people who were doubting in him. And he still believed in them. You know, God sees more potential. He sees more in us than any of us see in ourselves. We are quick to judge ourselves and to realize all of our limitations and say, no, God couldn't use me. And this is, I think, one of the great failures in the body of Christ, that the ministers and churches today, uh, they have put the emphasis on things that I believe are, are incidental. They aren't the core. It's about how you dress. It's about whether you have the style. I've had thousands and thousands of people tell me that they saw me on television for years and they would just pass me by because it wasn't exciting. I wasn't anointed. I wasn't dynamic. I was just sitting there and they said, well, what has he got to offer? They weren't into the word. It was into the symbolism. It was into the style because I didn't say glory to God and I didn't have a handkerchief wiping my fevered brow. They just didn't see it. And it's amazing how we have changed the ministry into whether you wear these certain suits and how the uh, program looks and all of these different kinds of things, all of the smoke and the mirrors, and we've got away from what it's really about. The people that shared the gospel that literally turned their world upside down were very simple men. They were fishermen. And we have gotten this concept that I'm not flashy enough. I'm not all of these things. When the Lord first called me to the ministry, I said, God, I'm a hick from Texas. I said, who would listen to me? I didn't like me. I've had people write in before and say, I thought you were Gomer Pyle. <laughs> They talk about my voice. And you know what? My voice is a lot better now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. <laughs> Amen. It's improved a lot. And uh, I had people make fun of me. And I thought, God, how could you ever use me? And you know, there was a number of things. But God just spoke to me how that when Jesus ministered, it says that people said, how can this man do these things seeing he has never learned? How could he have all of these things going on in his life? And Jesus said, if any man will follow me, he will know my doctrine and I'll reveal these things to him. And the Lord got across to me that he doesn't use us because of our, you know, because we're silver vessels. It's because we're surrendered vessels. And he showed me a lot of things. And basically I said, well, man, if being surrendered to God is the key, I can do that. I may not 
be smooth and polished the way some other people are, but man, I can seek God with my whole heart. I can do that, and I decided to do it. And the revelation of God's Word has literally transformed my life. So here's Jesus speaking to these fishermen, to people who there was nothing special, people who were still doubting whether he was even raised from the dead, and they were looking at him eyeball to eyeball. And they were doubting. And here's what he said, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go ye therefore, or in verse, let me read verse 18. And Jesus spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. There's a great truth in that. I hadn't got time to teach on it. But then he turned around and basically gave that power to them by saying in verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This is the Great Commission is what it's called. And this is what Jesus told his disciples. It's the last words that he told them as he left. You know, just by virtue of the fact that this was the last words he was ever going to say to them here on this earth, this had to be one of the most monumental things he had to say. It was his last opportunity. You know, if somehow I knew that I'd never get to minister to you again, if this was my last night to ever minister on this earth, and if I knew that this was my last time, I guarantee you I'd, I'd make sure it was important. I'd make sure that this was something, God, I've only got one chance. What do I have to say? And Jesus, this was his last words. He gave us the great commission and he said, go and teach all nations. That word teach here means to disciple. It's translated that way, I believe, in the NIV and some of the other translations. And he told us to go and make disciples teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. You know, this is so simple what he said. This is the commission. This is what God told us to do. And did you know that for thousands of years the church has ignored this commission? The church has gone out and made converts. And many of you may not have given much thought to this, but this is uh, not what the church has been doing. The church... And I'm not against anybody. Some of the things I say may really be different than our religious system today, but I'm not against an individual. I'm just against uh, mistakes that the church has made, and uh, so I'm not saying this to be contentious. But the church has made these huge crusades where we go out and hold these meetings and invite the lost in, and we may see 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 people say. I've read some reports recently about over a million people in some of these foreign countries being saved during a week or two weeks crusade. And they talk about this and they say, praise God, isn't this awesome? And that is completely contrary to what Jesus told us to do. Thank you for that thunderous silence. <laughs> Many of you are thinking, well, what's wrong with that? The Lord did not tell us to go and tell people that he could save us and get people to pray a prayer and get saved. He told us to go and make disciples. The word disciple means a learner, a follower, and he even verified it and explained it, teaching them to observe all things. All things that I have commanded you. I remember when I went to India the very first time that I was over there and 
uh, I had people come back and give reports of seeing 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people born again. And I went over there and preached my heart out. And I saw 20, 30, 40, 50 people born again. Saw a lot of miracles happen. I saw some good things happen. But I didn't see tens of thousands hundreds of thousands. And I remember flying home on the plane and there was a man sitting next to me that he was in a wheelchair. They had to take him out and people help him into his seat. And I asked him what had gone on. He had been over there for over a month and a half or something like that. He took seven people from his church with him. Two of them died during that period of time because of the things. This is back 1980. It's improved a lot. But back then it was life-threatening to be in the places that I was in. And uh, I'd been in places where they'd never seen a white man before. I was the very first person they'd ever seen. And, and two of the people from his church died. He was dehydrated. He had to hire a special person to follow him around and cook his food. But he held these crusades, and he had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people born again. And I didn't tell him what I'd been through. I didn't want to, you know, sour him. I just started asking, so how did you do this? And I got to talking, and he got to talking about how he held the crusades and how he did all of these things. And I remember when I was there, I've got a picture that I took of uh, an idol. There was this idol about this big, and it had Buddha over here, Hare Krishna over here, and in the middle was a statue of Jesus. And they were burning things to him. And I found out, you know, that if you tell people, make Jesus your Lord, make him God, They'll do it because they have 750 million gods in India. And you could get people to pray a prayer and make Jesus God, but to them, God meant the same thing. They believe that an ant over here is a god. They believe that snakes are god. They believe that Brahma bulls are god. And it didn't mean anything to them. And so, man, I was preaching what it meant to make Jesus Lord and to make a commitment and to be born again. Not that many people respond. I asked him specifically, I said, so did you say anything about that you had to make Jesus your Lord, that he had to be God and not just one of the 750 million gods? And this man said, oh, no, God gave me really wisdom and told me just to introduce him to them, to have them, you know, just accept Jesus, and then he'd clean them up later and solve all of this stuff. So he held these large meetings, had tens of thousands of people get born again, quote, unquote. But there was no commitment to the Lord. They weren't taught to observe all things. And, you know, some of them probably did get born again. But if you were to add up all of the people who've been born again in these crusades in India, it would amount to more than the 750 million people that live in India. They are not all born again. And in our churches today, we've got people who are professing themselves to be Christians, but they aren't all Christians. They just pray a prayer, and they believe that God exists. Isn't that enough? The Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that there's one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. But won't you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. Just believing that God exists is not salvation. The devil believes that. The devil believes it absolutely. He's just not submitted to God. He hasn't committed his life to God. He's not a disciple. And so anyway, I'm saying all of these things to say that we have put the emphasis on getting people born again. And we tell people about repent and receive your salvation so you won't die and go to hell. That is not what the Lord told us to do. And by doing that, we've actually created a problem. And that problem is that there are lots of people who've prayed and received salvation. If they were to die right now, they would go to heaven. They wouldn't go to hell. 
but they don't know how to live. They don't know how to walk in the joy of the Lord. They don't know what God has done for them. There are many Christians that if they were arrested for being a Christian, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict them. The average Christian is just as sick as the unbelieving neighbor that they live next to. They are just as stressed out. They are just as fearful. They're just as angry. They have the same lack of hope about things. They watch the same stuff on television. They think the same way. That's not a true Christian. Did you know that the Lord never talked about being a Christian? That word Christian was a name that the ungodly gave the believers. They called them, you're just little Christ, is what the word Christian means. And they were acting so much like Jesus that they started making fun of them. You're little Christ. You believe that you can heal the sick. You believe you can do these things. You believe God answers your prayers. You're a little Christ. And it was a derogatory term. And the Christians accepted it and started using that. But the Lord told us to make disciples. They were called his disciples. That was the terminology. And that's what Jesus called us to do is to make disciples. And the church hasn't done this. Did you know that if the church was doing what Jesus told us to do right here, did you know that there would be no need for Karis Bible College? Harris Bible College is a response to the church failing to do what God called them to do. And God's blessing is on this and he's using it. There's a lot of things in our life that are actually anomalies uh, that because of sin and because of failure, God loves people so much he'll get to them and reach people and do whatever he's got to do. But if the body of Christ was functioning the way they should, every local church's commitment and commission from God is to make disciples and teach them everything that he taught here in the word. And the average church today has reduced uh, their church services down to an hour on Sunday or maybe another hour on Wednesday or some night during the week and maybe a fellowship group where you get together and build some relationships and that is still a far, far cry from making a disciple. Probably the number one comment that I get, I've had it from two or three people today. I had people come up and say, I've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years. I have never heard the things that you're teaching. I have been in church my whole life and I never knew these things. That is the most common comment that I get. And that is an absolute shame. This is the job of the church is to make disciples and not converts. And yet this concept is so ingrained in us, there's probably people sitting right here who are thinking, but if we did that, well, then all of these people would die and go to hell. Actually, if we were more making disciples than we were convent, converts, convents, we would have more people born again, and we would get the job done much, much better. And people think, but man, there's hundreds of thousands of people that get born again in these crusades. But then what happens to them? First of all, there's only a percentage of those that are truly born again. Not all of them are born again. Jesus taught this, that in the church there would be tares along with the wheat. And he said, just let them grow together. You don't have the ability to judge a person's heart and stuff. And so don't you sit there and try and root them out yourself. Let them grow together. And at the end, the angels will separate the tares from the wheat. And so Jesus even talked about this happening. But if we were to preach the true gospel and make disciples instead... 
there's many of these people that weren't true converts in the first place. So all of these numbers would change just because there's only a percentage that are truly born again. But here's what would happen. If you, if you took a person, this is one of the things that the Lord spoke to me in the very beginning. When I first got turned on to the Lord, I was so excited. I wanted everybody to know about Jesus and to have the joy and the things that he was doing in my life. And I started witnessing to everything that moved. I knocked on at least a hundred doors a day and witnessed. I did everything I could. But after a brief period of time, I was frustrated because I would see these people pray a prayer after me. And as far as I could tell, they were saved. And yet I'd go back six months later. And if I hadn't have led them to the Lord, I wouldn't have any indication they were ever born again. There was no change. There was no victory. There was no joy. They didn't have any power in their life. Sound familiar to anybody? And I was just frustrated. And the, and the Lord put me in contact with some people, and they gave me a couple of examples. Here are these examples, and this is what totally changed my life back. This would have been in 1969, I think, is when the Lord spoke this to me. And he there was two examples. If you took a man who led a thousand people to the Lord every year, you know, that would be like three people a day that you get born again. Nearly two point something people per day. I don't know anybody that does that. That would be exceptional. But if you took the greatest evangelist you could imagine who led a thousand people a year to the Lord, then at the end of a 35-year ministry, he would have 35,000 people born again. And if it's similar to the way we see things in church today, you take 35,000 people, you'd be doing good to get 10 or 20% that are on fire turned on to God that actually do anything. Most of the churches, Greg and anybody who's pastored can verify this, that there's about 10 to 20% of the people that do all of the giving, all of the serving, all of the work in church, and the others are just sitting there watching. So if you took a man and over a 35-year period of time, he had 35,000 converts and maybe 3,500 or 7,000 of those might be turned on committed Christians did you know that that wouldn't even change uh, Colorado Springs? It has, I don't know, probably 250,000 people proper in the area, maybe close to half a million people. Did you know that 7,000 people or even 35,000 converts would not change this city? You take some place like New York City, some of these bigger places, it'd be a drop in the bucket. If that's the way that we're going to try and win the world and do things, we're fighting a losing battle. But if you took a man who not only made a convert, but taught them to observe all things and just poured themselves into them. Let's say that this guy just led one person to the Lord every six months and then took that person and put them in total isolation and 24 hours a day, just poured his life into him, told him about the things of God, taught him the Word of God, and got this guy established so that he in return could go out and make another disciple. Well, in contrast, the person who was making converts by six months would have 500 converts. The person who's making disciples would only have one. There'd be two of them, counting him and the person that he made a disciple. At the end of one year, the person making converts would have 1,000 converts. The one making disciples would have four because each one of these two went out and reproduced and then just separated themselves and did that. And see, people look at that and think, man, that's not working very well. 
But if you just keep doubling this and, and extrapolating it out, did you know at the end of 12 and a half years, the person making disciples would have more than six point, or excuse me, seven point something billion disciples in 12 years. Whereas the person making converts would have a little over 12,000 converts who wouldn't be walking in the power of God and wouldn't be reproducing their faith. If we would do what the Lord told us to do, it's actually a much more effective method of reaching people. And the second illustration they gave me is there's 64 squares on a chessboard or a checkerboard. If you put one grain of wheat on the first square and then doubled it on the second square, this is what disciples do. Each disciple becomes a reproducing member that can touch another person's life. So you put one grain of wheat on the first square, two grains of wheat on the second square, four on the third, eight, 16, 32, 74, and you just keep building up. By the time you get to the 64 square, you would have enough wheat to cover the continent of India three feet deep in wheat. Somebody says, no, that's not so. Go home and add it up. If you only had half of the continent covered on the 63rd square, you'd double it. It's exponential. The Lord told us to make disciples. This is what his heart is. And this is, when the Lord showed me these things, prior to that time, it was all about getting people saved. Which, man, getting people saved is wonderful. But you know what? If you get a person saved, you've got a responsibility to make a disciple of that person. This would be comparable to a person who says, I love babies. I just love seeing newborns. They're awesome. And so you want to go get a newborn. And as soon as you get a newborn, you just are so excited and say, wonderful. And then you throw it in the corner and let's go get another newborn. You know what? That's not right. If you, if you bring a baby into this world, you've got a responsibility to nurture and to take care of that child and raise them up, and it takes a period of time. And Christians have advocated their responsibility. And they say, well, come to church one hour a week. How many hours are in a week? I don't know, but there's a bunch. And you give a person one hour a week and tell them to do a 15-minute Bible study and if you're really fanatical, watch somebody on television, get a CD set and listen to it. That's not what God called us to do. And because of this, we've got a lot of people who've been touched by the Lord, but they don't know the Word and they actually become a negative witness for the Lord. I bet you every person in here has heard somebody say, something about, you know, the hypocrites down there at church, and they are, they're offended by the people who call themselves Christians. I was talking to Lawson Purdue today. I went over to his house, and he's got a neighbor that's not a believer, and he says, but he hates Christians, and he hates pastors especially, but he likes Lawson because Lawson isn't religious. But you know what? That guy's got a chip on his shoulder because he's seen people who call themselves Christians and they're judgmental and they're mean and they're all of these other things and that turns people off from the Lord. Those people are not disciples. The fact that we've been trying to make converts and they, they wear this badge that I'm a Christian but they act like the devil, they're mean as the devil, they're critical, they're all of these things. It has turned untold number of people against the Lord. Mahatma Gandhi, who was exiled from India and he was exiled in Africa 
because of political things, while he was in exile, he studied the Bible because he wanted to know who the true God was. And he read the New Testament, and he was absolutely convinced that Jesus was the Son of God, and he was going to become a Christian. And he went to a Presbyterian church in Africa to make a profession of his faith, and when he got there, they wouldn't let him in because he was black, and he was an all-white church. And they turned him away, and he walked out, and he said, I would have been a Christian if I hadn't have met one. And Mahatma Gandhi went back, led India to independence from the British Empire. 750 million people he influenced, had them in the palm of his hand. And if he would have been a believer, he could have converted those people, certainly made a huge impact on them. But he didn't because he meant Christians who were maybe converts, maybe not converts, but at least professed to be converts, but they weren't disciples. They didn't represent God, right? And it turned hundreds of millions of people against the Lord. This is not what God called us to do. This is the reason that he raises up Bible, stuff, Bible schools and things like this is to just literally saturate you. We are trying to do what the Great Commission says. This is why God raised it up. And this is what's missing in so many people's lives. Being born again changes you on the inside. But you've got to get your mind renewed. It's like this is... This is like, you know, being plugged into the city water system down here. You've got this well of living water in you, but your mind is the spigot. And you've got to turn that and open it up before what's on the inside of you can flow out, before you can experience the blessing of God. And the renewing of your mind is what does this. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, these are the verses, the very first verses the Lord ever spoke into my life. They changed me. And he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. That means to pour into the mold of. Don't be poured into the mold of this world. Don't be like this world. But be transformed. The word transformed there is the Greek word metamorpho. It's the word we get metamorphosis from. If you want to be like a little worm that comes out a butterfly, something that's bound to this earth and ugly and becomes something that can fly and it's beautiful. If you want transformation, you do that by the renewing of your mind. That's what a disciple is, is to teach a person the Word and to help renew their mind. And that's what you do. And that proves the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. And brothers and sisters, I can guarantee you, if, if you were like Gary was talking about, that you just know that there's something more. You know that there's something that you aren't getting. You know that God has an abundant life for you and somehow you aren't there. I can guarantee you it is not the fact that you need somebody to lay hands on you. It is not the fact that you need to fast and pray more. That could be a portion of it. But it's ultimately just the fact that you don't know what you've got. You haven't renewed your mind. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Your life is going the direction of your dominant thought. Thank you for that one head nod. Some of you are thinking, oh, no, you don't understand. I've been abused. I've had this happen, and it's not my fault. No, it doesn't matter what happens to you. Your life is the way you think. 
Not the way you want it to be, not what you are praying for, not what you are hoping for, but your life is the way that you think. If you are messed up, your thinking is messed up. 2 Peter chapter 1 says, verse 3, All things that pertain unto life and godliness, which is anything that you need, is given unto us through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue. It's through the renewing of your mind that you're transformed. You don't need God to touch you. You don't need something more from God. You don't need a new touch. You're already touched. Amen? You need the renewing of your mind to find out what you've got. And you need to be discipled is what it is. The Lord told us to make disciples. And if you are truly born again, then everything you need is on the inside of you. God loves you more than you could ever comprehend. You've got more joy and peace and anointing and power. You don't need anything else. What you need is a revelation of what you've already got, which is what this Word is all about. Everything that pertains unto life and godliness comes through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue. 2 Peter 1.3 And then verse 4 says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding precious promises that by these we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. These promises are the Word of God. This is God's heart and mind. And if we teach people this, it's just simple. You change the way you think, and as you think in your heart, that's the way that you become. If you are struggling, it's because you don't have knowledge. Some of you may have heard things, but there's a difference in just getting a head knowledge and having it soaked down on the inside. It's like a sponge. You know, you can take a sponge that's hard and you can dip it in water and you can get it wet around the edges, but it's still brittle. It's still hard. To really get it, you've got to immerse yourself. You've got to sit and soak and let these things get in your heart. I was talking to a man on the phone today. Pastor Bobby Ray, he travels with us from Dallas, North Carolina, and he's heard me for 20 years. I go to that area and minister, and he's been blessed, and it's helped him some, but he started traveling with us as one of our prayer ministers to our Bible uh, Gospel Truth Seminars, and Pastor Bobby told me, he says, you know, until I started traveling with you and sitting under this and getting it five messages in three days and doing it over and over and over, he says, I didn't get it. He says, I thought I had it, but he says it's changed his life. I had the same thing said to me by, if any of you have been to our Gospel Truth Seminars, um, Derry and Karen Jolly, who do the ambassadors to the nations, they've heard me for 25 or 30 years, but when they started traveling and sitting under the Word, it changes your life. There's a difference in just having a surface knowledge and just having it on the inside of you. A disciple is a person who's immersed in it. Look, look at some of these scriptures in John chapter 8. Let me show you some things that Jesus said. You need to read this out of your Bible. You wouldn't believe this is in the Bible if you don't read it. This, this is just so different than the way most people think. John chapter 8, Jesus was teaching about who he was, that being committed unto him and all of these things. He was persecuted. People said, you're full of the devil. They accused him of all kinds of things, and he stood and defended this. And it says here in John chapter 8 and in verse 30, As he spake these words, many believed on him. 
he was being assailed by the Pharisees and criticized and he stood and spoke the words and many of the people who were listening believed on him. And look what he said unto these people. In verse 31, Then said Jesus unto those Jews which believed on him. He wasn't talking to the unbelievers. He was talking to the people who believed on him. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Now this is helping clarify what a disciple is. A disciple is not a person who just has heard something and says, Oh, I agree with that. I accept that. I believe in that. It's a person who continues in the Word. And I could spend all night talking about that. But continuing in the Word is talking about you're committed to it. It's not just something that you acknowledge that it's a truth, but you don't let it interfere with the way you conduct your life. Most people don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. But this is talking about a person who continues in the Word. A person who is dominated by the Word. What the Word says about them controls them. And brothers and sisters, we aren't ragging on anybody here. You're the cream of the crop that came here and did this. And so, but I'm saying that, you know what, there's a lot of people sitting right here that you know that the Word says something that you aren't living. And you just aren't doing it. You aren't a disciple. I meet people all the time that know that the Word says give and it shall be given unto you. It talks about a tithe. It talks about giving much more than a tithe. And many people know that and yet they just say, well, I can't do it. You aren't a disciple. I'm not saying that to hurt you. I'm just saying that there's lots of people that the Word says this, but they don't do what the Word says. The Word says to turn the other cheek, but you don't do that. You're mad at somebody. You're never going to forget them. You're never going to let them go from what they've done to you. And you know that the Word says that you're supposed to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God has forgiven you. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, I believe it is. And you know that the Word says this. You know that the Word says that you're supposed to, uh, if somebody smites you on one cheek, turn the other cheek, that you aren't supposed to judge. Judge not that you be not judged. And you know that the Word says it, but that doesn't apply to you. We've got millions and millions and millions of people who call themselves Christians who they wouldn't argue that at all. Oh yeah, I know that the Word says I'm supposed to witness. The Word says that I'm supposed to be the salt of the earth. The Word says if I'm ashamed of Him, that He'll be ashamed of me. I'm not supposed to deny Him. We know that the Word says all kinds of things and we just choose whether we want to do it or not. That's not a disciple. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. People quote that verse all of the time, that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they don't take it in its context. This is talking about people who continue in the word, people who let the word dominate them. And only after you continue in it, after you commit yourself to it, after you dominate your life by what God says about you, only then will the truth make you free. The truth does not make you free, period. It's only the truth you know and continue in that makes you free. You can take this Bible, which Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 7, that my word is truth. And you could take this word and lay it on your head and it will never set you free. You can keep it on your coffee table. You could hold it like this. And this Bible is not going to set you free until you take it off of this page, put it in your heart, it becomes a part of you and you begin to live it and continue in it. That's when you become a disciple and that's when you get set free. 
And I'm sure, again, that there are people here that you aren't free in areas. You've got sickness in your body. You've got poverty. You've got hurt and pain and depression and unforgiveness and fear. And you still, you're still suffering because 20 years ago somebody did something to you. That's not a disciple. That's not walking in what the Word says. I'm not mad at you. I'm not lack of compassion towards you. I'm just saying it doesn't have to be that way. But see, we've got all of these people who are only converts. They aren't disciple. And the average quote-unquote Christian lives at such a low level that we look around and think, well, everybody's sick. Everybody suffers. There's a recession. So I'm supposed to be experiencing problems when the Bible clearly says that my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19. You don't have to go through recession. We just had a board meeting. They did a service. Did I say this this morning? I said it someplace. I did say it this morning. Anyway, everybody else is suffering and going down. Most churches, most ministries are suffering. We just had a 40% increase last year in our income. God is blessing us because I'm operating in what the Word says and believing God. You do not have to just follow what the world does. God is your source. But see, most Christians don't believe this because they aren't disciples. And so the average Christian looks around and says, well, Christians are no different than anybody else. If, if there's a recession, we've got to suffer just like everybody else. And if that's the way you think in your heart, that's the way you'll be. I'm telling you, every problem you've got in your life is because of stinking thinking. If you were thinking according to the Word of God, Romans chapter 8, verse 6, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded, which is Word of God minded, is life and peace. If you've got anything other than life and peace in your body, in your life, in your experience, it's because you are not spiritually minded. You aren't dominated according to the Word of God. You aren't a disciple. You might be a convert. You might be truly born again. But you do not have the Word of God living on the inside of you. Or God's Word causes you to triumph. God's Word will make you productive. God's Word will make you overcome. I'm preaching better than you're listening. If you'll continue in the Word, then you will know the truth and the truth that you know will make you free. If you aren't free, you have not continued in the Word, period. Well, that's true for most people, but you don't understand. I've got this. No. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. If you aren't prosperous and succeeding, it's because you didn't continue in the Word and you don't know the truth and that's the reason you aren't free, Period. Well, I've been waiting on somebody to come pray for me. You don't have to have somebody else come pray for you. You get into the Word of God and continue in it, and you will be made free. You know, one of the things that blesses me the most, I was telling Jamie about this today, that we just for decades, it was like we did everything. I did all of the praying. If I didn't do it, it didn't get done. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed seeing people's lives change. But you know now I'm in a situation where I love to see other people get up and do things. And these testimonies about our healing school. I'm going to be teaching in healing school. Is it next week? It's the first time I've ever ministered there. They've been, it'll be their one-year anniversary, and I've never ministered in my own healing school. <laughs> and you know why? Because people think I'm the only one that can pray. People come, and they just line up 
and I've prayed with people by the hour after hour after hour. And you know what? I am not able to deal with every person. I'm only one person. We've got to make disciples, other people who can do it. And so we've taught other people. And uh, Ashley and Carly and Daniel have done a great job raising up the students. And I purposely have not been to the healing school yet because I didn't want it to be about me. It needs to be the Word of God. And I am just thrilled to hear these reports of miraculous things happening. It thrills me when other... I would rather teach you how to see miracles happen than to see me do the miracle. This is what it's all about. And once you understand this, it gives you leverage. Right now, we've got thousands of graduates that are all out doing things. We've got people that are out doing things that I could never do. We had one of our students go to Uganda. He died this last year. But in just the, what was it, seven years or something that he was in Uganda, he met with the president, the first lady. He started a discipleship program that there is over 500,000 people a week in Uganda going through discipleship. And those people that attended the discipleship classes have gone out and seen multiple people raised from the dead. It is just transforming lives. Man, I glory in that. I would rather see that than to see me do all of these things in Uganda and see people raised from the dead because that's the only way that we're ever going to get this done is to start making disciples. Start teaching people what the Word says. And that's what Jesus was out to do. These people believed on Him. Most people who are insecure and just, you know, they, they just have to have people validate them and show that things are good. Jesus was being criticized. Most people would have just said, oh, you believe on me, and he would have thanked them and heaped praise on them and things like that. And yet Jesus turned around and he says, you got to continue in my word if you want to really be a disciple, and only then will you be made free. And did you know that people were offended? Look at, look at their response right here. After he said this, in verse 33, they answered and said, We be Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? They were offended that he said they've got to do something else to be made free. They believed on him. Isn't that enough? No, Jesus said, you've got to continue in the Word, and then you'll be made free. And they said, we've never been in bondage. You know, this is really ironic because they were being ruled over by the Romans. They were oppressed. All of you have seen Ben-Hur, hadn't you? They were treated terrible. There was bad things going on. And they said, we've never been in bondage to any man. Boy, this is in direct parallel to people today who when you go to preaching about being a disciple and only after you get into the Word and continue in it will you be really free enough. I'm not having any problems. I'm free. I don't need anything else. Everything's fine. You're just as sick as the people that don't know the Lord. You're as poor. You get as distressed. When 9-11 came around, I met thousands of Christians that were just panicked. What's going to happen? And yet the Bible says if you keep your mind stayed on the Lord, He'll keep you in perfect peace. It doesn't matter if this nation was in war. It doesn't matter what's going on. It says in the scripture that though the, though the mountains be removed and cast into the sea, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I'll have peace. Man, that certainly would qualify anything that's going to happen to us. We hadn't seen anything that bad happen. And yet people, when 9-11 happened, Christians panicked. They wouldn't fly anymore. They were terrorized. They were afraid to do stuff. 
When Y2K came along, Christians were just pushing the panic button. This is the millennium. It's the rapture, the tribulation period. And Christians were buying guns so that they could kill people in the name of the Lord and, and preserve their own stuff. Christians panicked and acted like unbelievers because they didn't know what the Word says. And they say, I'm, I don't have any problems. I don't need to make, be made free. You're operating in fear. We're cutting back. We're acting like an unbeliever who doesn't have God as our supply. We're sick. We're poor. We're depressed. Relationships are struggling. And yeah, I'm free. I don't have any problems. It's just like the Jews. says, we've never been in bondage to any man. And they were being ruled over by another nation. Most of us have been told that what God expects is for us to live this beggarly life. We don't understand what God intended for the Christian life to be. We don't have a clue of how free we should be. And we're going along thinking that this beggarly existence that most people live is normal. And you think, what do I need to be set free from? Sickness, disease, poverty, bitterness, hurt, pain, fear... On and on and on. Man, we're in bondage and don't even know it. They took offense. We don't, we, we don't need to be set free. We've never been in bondage to any man. So the Lord said unto them, says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Do any of you have some sins that it seems like just seem to dominate you? It could be things that are socially acceptable. Food. You overeat, stuff you're a glutton, which the Bible says it listed right next to drunkenness, but, you know, gluttony is the acceptable sin. If you're a servant to it, then that's master over you. It could be the economy. It could be lust. It could be anger. It could be you just having a short fuse, you worrying about things, gossiping. There's just all kinds of things. Man, if, if you've got sin, you are the slave, the servant of that. You need to be set free. You know what will do it? Becoming a disciple, getting into the Word of God and renewing your mind. And he says, And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. And if the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And he goes on to say, look, I know you're Abraham's physical descendants, but you aren't operating in the faith of Abraham. You may have his bloodline in you, but you don't have that faith operating in you. And man, they got offended. And they said down here in verse uh, 39, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. In other words, if you were truly free, you'd act like a free person. They were in bondage and didn't even know it. They had compared themselves among themselves so often for so long that they didn't even realize what they were missing. And he's just trying to tell them, that, look, you need to continue and get set free. You need to be a disciple. Believing isn't enough. You've got to be a disciple. He was making disciples, not converts. And they just kept arguing with him. And finally, look at what Jesus said down here in verse 44. He says, you are of your father the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. Who is he talking to? Verse 31, he was talking to people who believed on him. You are of your father the devil. I don't, I don't understand this totally, but I don't believe that this means necessarily that they weren't born again. Now, of course, none of these were actually born again because you couldn't be born again until after Jesus rose from the dead. 
So that's a New Testament thing. This is before that was put into place. But these could have been people who were really believers and they were trusting God. If they would have died, they would have gone to Abraham's bosom. But their attitudes, their life was of their father, the devil. They were being controlled by demonic things. They weren't free. And Jesus told people who believed on him, you are of your father, the devil. You know, this message doesn't play very well today in the body of Christ because this is talk. Oh, you mean I got to do something more than just get born again than say a prayer? And You mean I got to start living for God and I've got to get to where I can walk on water and see power manifest in my life and walk in victory and reproduce my faith and lead other people to the Lord? And that's for you preachers. That's what we pray you, pay you to do. See, this is another major problem in the body of Christ. We haven't made disciples. We've made just a few clergy and then all of the laity just basically sits in the pew and we pay the pastor to do all of these things. No pastor's ever going to change a, a city. But you know what? If you had the whole congregation operating in this, if, if you were to just take a church... And if a church would just make a commitment that, man, we are going to become a disciple. We are going to learn the Word of God, whatever it takes. And that might be different for different people, but I guarantee it's going to be more than one hour a week. And if you would make a commitment, and if say you just spent a year making every person that comes to that church a disciple, teaching them the Word of God, having them to where they continue in the Word of God, the Word of God dominates them. If you had a church of 200 people, that's, uh, I think it's 80%, if I'm not mistaken, of all of the churches in the United States are below 200 people. We have mega churches, but probably somewhere around 150 to 200 would be an average church. If you took an average church of 200 people, spent a year just pouring yourself in and discipling these people and making disciples, then for that one year you'd have maybe 200 people in the church. But if they were true disciples they would go out and reproduce that faith. And then in the second year, you'd have 400 people in that church because everybody would have reproduced themselves. And that's just on a one-to-one -one basis. They could do more than that. But take a conservative estimate. In the second year, you'd have 400 people. In the third year, you'd have 800 people. In the fourth year, you'd have 1,600 people. In the fifth, fifth year, you'd have 3,200 people. In the sixth year, you'd have, what, 7,400 people. And then you go up, did I get that right or wrong? But anyway, you go up to 14,600 or whatever, and then it starts going exponentially. Within 10 years, a church of 200 people, if they would start making disciples and people would do it, they'd be over 10,000 people, 20,000 people. They could start making a difference. This is what God's called us to do. And this is what the school is all about, is to make disciples. And I'm just saying to you that if you recognize that, that you aren't a disciple, you haven't been set free, you aren't free indeed, that there is more than what you've experienced, I'm telling you what's missing is that you haven't been a disciple. Everything that pertains to life and godliness comes through the renewing of your mind. You get transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if you recognize that that's you and you need to do it, this is what it's about, and we'd like to help you get there. And it would change your life. And I promise you, it would, it would happen. 
you would have the Word presented in such a way that you would either have to come to a place to where you say, this is more than I want to do, I'm not willing to do it, and you would, you would quit, or you'd be transformed. It's one of the two. The Word of God's an incorruptible seed. You never plant it, and it doesn't produce anything. The only people that the Word doesn't work for are the people that don't plant it in their life and keep it there and retain it and defend it. It changed your life. What I've described tonight is super, super simple. It's so simple, you've got to have somebody to help you to misunderstand it. But you know what? It's not easy. It's hard. It takes a commitment. Gary talked about he left a good job, a nice house, three cars, boat, everything. You know what? You give up some stuff. But you know what? He's got back much, much more than he's given. Man, he's changing people's lives. Someday, we're going to all be in heaven. And you know what? When you are in heaven, there's not going to be a single person that comes up and says, I wished you hadn't have encouraged me to come to school. I wished I'd have still gotten that big house. You know what? Your house is going to be gone. Your cars are going to be gone. Your fancy clothes and rings, all of these things. There's not going to be a single person in heaven saying, I wished I'd have had a nicer car. <laughs> you aren't going to care a rip about any of that stuff. I mean, how big a house do you have to have to sleep at night? How many beds do you have to have to go to bed? How big does your bathroom have to be for you to take care of business? I mean, the American dream is just get all you can and then can all you get and then sit on your can. And there's something more to life than that. And I can guarantee you, whatever you have to give up, it will cost you something. But you'll get it back a hundredfold. Jesus said there's no man that has left house or father or mother or brother or sister or wife or children for my sake but what he will receive a hundredfold in this life and in the world to come everlasting life. You will get back more than you ever give up. It will cost you something to be a disciple. It will cost you your sickness and your depression, and your poverty, and your sadness, and your miserableness, and your anger, your unforgiveness. It will cost you something, and you will get back in return so much. You've heard a number of students today testify, and you know what? I don't know of a single student here that's sorry that they came. That's not to say that every student just sees everything work properly because we're all in the process of renewing our minds. Some of us got more junk to get out than others. Not every person is just perfect, but I don't think there's a single person here that's sorry that they came. It's good. And it's changing their life. And it's as simple as what I'm describing. You put the Word in your heart and renew your mind, and you will be made free. If you'll continue in the Word, the truth that you know will set you free. It's literally that simple. It's life-changing. And Jamie and I didn't go to a Bible college. And you know what? We learned. And uh, the Holy Spirit taught us. We sat under other people that were mentors, and we went to meetings. And I mean, I spent 15 hours a day in the Word for decades. I still spend lots of time in the Word. It can be done on your own. And if you live through it, it makes a great testimony. <laughs> But you know what? You don't have to do it on your own. You can 
expedite things. You can learn by my mistakes. Greg and Janice, they went through that um, uh, lawsuit, $9 million, and they struggled. They'll tell you about what they went through and how they dealt with it and how I remember them getting as drunk as a skunk had to drag them to their room. The joy of the Lord came on them. And they'll tell you about how things like this happen and how they got set free. And it'll inspire you that it doesn't matter how bad things get you in your life, that you can live through it. You know, when Jamie and I saw the first person uh, healed, I didn't know that a person had been healed in 2,000 years. I never heard anybody's testimony. Nobody I ever heard of was ever healed. But I read it in the Bible and we just started believing and we started seeing miracles happen. It would have been wonderful to have somebody stand up and testify about, oh yeah, I've seen miracles. I've seen people raised from the dead. I've seen it would have been encouraging. We stumbled onto it. You know, if you don't quit, you'll eventually find the truth, but it's so much easier if somebody can help you. I mean, if you just don't quit, it's like a blind squirrel will get a nut every once in a while if he doesn't quit. And Jamie and I just begin to start stumbling on things and seeing things happen, and praise God that we survived it. It makes a great testimony. But I'll probably share this with you tomorrow from the scripture that uh, Greg quoted tonight, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We have a command that the things which we have received from the Lord, we are supposed to commit to faithful men and women so that they can teach others also. God set up this system of making disciples. And you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to go through the hardship that I went through and that Barry went through and that Gary went through. You don't have to do all of this stuff. You will have to learn the same things, but you know, it's a lot easier to have somebody else tell you not to beat your head against the wall because it doesn't feel good and it'll hurt. And it, you don't have to learn all that by hard knocks. You can take my word for it. You can learn something. I tell you, this is powerful. It would change your life. And this, I believe, is Christianity 101. This is basic Christianity, and very few Christians are in the process of being a disciple. Most of them have prayed and asked the Lord to forgive them so that they won't go to hell. They're saved and they're stuck. Just waiting on the rapture. And that's not what God called us to do. And that's not abundant life. And you have the potential. You've got God Almighty living on the inside of you. You have the potential of literally changing the world. Maybe not the whole world. It depends on what God's purpose for you is. But you will change your world. You'll change your family and friends, the people that you work with, whatever it is that God's called you to do. I guarantee you, if you learn these things and become a disciple, you will start seeing miracle after miracle after miracle happen and things happening. You shouldn't have to refer to somebody else and use their testimony. You ought to have a testimony about what the Word of God's done in your life and how it's setting you free and how it's changing people. And that's what God wants for you. This whole way that the body is set up, that it all revolves around the individuals. Again, I'm saying, I just love seeing other people, our students do the ministry instead of me doing the ministry. That's the only way it's ever going to work. I can't reach everybody. Every person in here knows people personally, family or friends, work people. 
I spent, what do we spend, a oh, million, million and a half, two million dollars a month, whatever it is, on television and radio airtime? I, and I could spend ten times that. I could be spending two million, twenty million dollars a month on television and radio airtime. And every one of you know people that will never hear of me that I will never reach, but that you could reach them. Every one of you. And you know what? If I could instill things in you and get every one of you to commit to, I'm going to learn the Word. I will continue in the Word. I will be set free so that I can set another person free. And if every person in here was to do that, then I can guarantee you, if every person in here was doing this, just this group right here in a very short period of time could make a huge impact, much bigger impact than what I could ever do being on television by myself. Brothers and sisters, this is how God wants the kingdom to operate. And praise God, we want to help you get there. Isn't that awesome? Let me just say that there's, there's two things that every person has to have that are essential to everybody. And then, beyond that, you have to find out what God's specific will is for you and start following that, and we diverge and go different ways. But every person, if you are ever going to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus, you must be born again. You have to have a change on the inside of you. Jesus said, unless you be born from above, you cannot even enter into the kingdom of God. You have to have God Almighty come and change your heart. The things of God are just beyond your natural self. You have to be born again. You have to be a new person on the inside. If there's anybody here who's never been born again, that's a necessary step. You've got to do that. There might be somebody here who's religious and you've gone to church and you say, well, I'm trying to be a good person and I believe that there's a God. Again, I quote that verse I did earlier, James chapter 2, verse 19. If you believe that there's one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. But won't you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? It takes more than just believing that God exists. You have to commit your life to Him. And you have to make Him your Lord. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. That's more than just saying the words. It means you are making Him Lord. Doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Nobody can ever keep it perfectly, but you have to be willing to commit and make Him your Lord and want to serve Him and turn it over to Him. If you've never done that, you need to do that tonight. And then once you get born again, every person who is born again and is truly changed in their heart, you have to have the Holy Spirit to empower you to become a disciple. You know, I've had so many people tell me that the Bible is so hard to understand. That's because the Holy Spirit wrote it to your spirit, not to your brain. He wrote it to your spirit. It has to be perceived by your spirit, man. It has to be received in your heart. Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. It ha the Word is revealed from spirit to spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals it to your spirit. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit, John 14, 26, is to teach you all truth and to bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever. I have spoken unto you. The Holy Spirit, when He has come, will take of me and reveal it unto you, is what Jesus said. 
So the second thing that every person has to have, you have to be born again in your spirit, but then you have to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is separate from being born again. You have access to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's involved in salvation, but there's a difference in having the Holy Spirit with you and having the Holy Spirit in you. Jesus told his disciples after they were already born again, don't go anywhere, don't tell anyone, don't hold a crusade, don't make a convert until you be endued with power from on high. And that happened in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, and it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. I tell you, if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which one of them is speaking in tongues, then you are never going to succeed at being a disciple. You have to have the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit working on the inside of you. And when you pray in tongues, it's just like flipping a switch. It's just like turning on the power source. And I tell you, the anointing of God goes to working on the inside, and revelation will come. If I had time, I could, get, I could teach on this for hours, but the Holy Spirit is one of the most crucial, uh, important things that you have to have in order to become a disciple. The Holy Spirit is sent to teach us and lead us into all truth. So if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't have one or both of those, if you aren't born again, you need to be. And if you are born again, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and if you don't speak in tongues, you need to. And there may be somebody here thinking, but I don't speak in tongues, but I really don't think that's necessary. Every disciple in the Bible spoke in tongues. Do you have to speak in tongues? No, you don't have to speak in tongues. You can go to heaven without speaking in tongues and you can get there quicker because you aren't going to have the Holy Spirit working and revealing things to you and you aren't going to be flowing in the power of God. God loves you if you don't speak in tongues and have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I guarantee you, you're missing out on an essential part of speaking in tongues. I mean, of, of God working in your life and that's speaking in tongues. Somebody might say, well, I'm just not sure about it. Well, I am. So if you aren't sure, you ought to trust somebody who is sure. I'm telling you, it'll change your life. If you don't speak in tongues, you need to receive this gift. It will change your life. It is one of the most important things that you could ever do. Is there anybody here tonight who would say, I need one or both of those. I need to receive salvation, baptism of the Holy Spirit, or both of them. Anybody? Here's a woman back here. Here's another one. Anybody else? If that's you, I just want you to be bold. Raise your hand. we got hands all over here. Somebody's probably thinking, what are you going to do? I don't have a church for you to join. I'm not going to ask anything of you. I'm going to give to you and help you, and I've got a book that I'll give you that will help explain all of these things. It's a free gift. So you got nothing to lose, but you got everything to gain. You know, if you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand but didn't do it, would you just get up out of your chair and come forward, stand right here, and we're going to pray with you and we're going to help you to receive. Let's come forward right now and we're going to help you to receive. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. It's going to make a big, big difference in your life. That's awesome. Thank you, Jesus. 
Isn't this great? You know, before I can pray with you to receive the Holy Spirit, you first of all have to be born again. The Bible says that Jesus is the one who gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you have to receive the giver before you receive the gift. You have to make Jesus your Lord and believe in your heart that He's come and forgiven your sins and lives on the inside of you. You have to have Jesus living inside of you before you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is there anybody up here who's not absolutely certain that you are born again and that Jesus is your Lord? I need to pray with you first because you can't receive the Holy Spirit until you receive Jesus. Is there anybody who's not absolutely certain and I need to pray with you first? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Anybody? You aren't sure? We'll pray with you. Anybody else? Are you sure? If you were to die right now, where would you go? All right. You need to be sure. I asked that question one time, and a man said, Well, I guess I'd go to Pennsylvania. That's where everybody else in my family's buried. I'm talking about would you go to heaven or hell. And if you don't know for sure where you'd go, then you need to make sure. And it says that when you confess Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to lead all of us. I'd like everybody in here to just pray this prayer so that people won't feel like we're listening to them. And if you've never really prayed this prayer and meant it, it's not magic. It's not just saying the words. It says you have to confess it with your mouth and believe it in your heart. But if you will believe it in your heart, then you become a totally changed person on the inside. Jesus comes and lives on the inside of you. And if something was to happen and you were to die tonight, you'd go directly to the presence of God. Isn't that awesome? So let me just have everybody say this after me. Say, Father, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. And I receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I make you the Lord of my life. I believe that you are alive. That you now live in me. I am saved. I am forgiven. Right now. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Do you believe that? Welcome to the family. You're born again. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus heard and answered your prayer? Amen. Welcome to the family. You're a brand new person. Isn't that awesome? That's great. Now, there's twice in 1 Corinthians that it says that when a person makes Jesus their Lord like this, that you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's significant because we're asking the Holy Spirit to come into our lives, and the Bible says that once you're born again, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God created you to be a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. So there's no way that God would fail to give you the Holy Spirit. This is what you were created for. It's the whole purpose of your salvation is to make you a brand new person on the inside so that this Holy Spirit could come live on the inside of you. 
So we don't have to wonder, will God do it? We don't have to beg. All we got to do is just like open up the doors of this temple a little bit, and I guarantee you, God wants to come in and fill you more than you want to be filled. So we're just going to ask one time. Some people teach that you got to get all sin out of your life, and you can't have any impure thoughts, and you got to be perfect before the Holy Spirit can come into your life. If you could get holy without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. So don't let this thinking stop you. The reason God wants to give you power is so that you can begin to overcome. There is nothing in your life that is going to stop you. You were created to be a temple for the Holy Spirit. All you got to do is open up the doors of this heart and believe that God is coming into your life. And I guarantee you, the power of God is going to come flow in you. Isn't that awesome? I'd like our prayer ministers to come up here. Ashley, have we got some people going to do that? The Healing School Prayer Ministers. Let's ask them to come up here. And I want them to lay, come stand behind you. And they're going to lay hands on you. And the reason I do this is because it says that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was given. And so, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And then after we pray and welcome the Holy Spirit, then they are going to lay hands on you and release this power into your life. And then after they lay hands on you, I want you to quit asking. There's a time to ask, but then there's a time to believe that God's Word is true. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Then they're going to lay hands on you and release this power into you. And then... I want you to start thanking God by faith that He gave you the Holy Spirit, regardless of what you feel like. It doesn't matter what you feel like. It's not The Holy Spirit isn't a feeling. Sometimes people have great emotional things, and that's okay. But when I received the Holy Spirit, I didn't feel a thing. But I got the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're going to pray. They're going to lay hands on you. And then I want you to start thanking Him. And at that time, after they lay hands on you, I want you to lift your hands like this because the Bible says when you lift up your hands, you bless the Lord. It's a way of just blessing Him. Father, thank You for giving me the Holy Spirit. It's like when somebody sticks a gun in your back and you go, I surrender. <laughs> Amen. It's your way of saying, God, I yield, I receive. So I'm going to pray for you. They're going to lay hands on you. We're going to lift our hands and start thanking God for giving you the Holy Spirit. And then those that have the baptism of the Holy Spirit are going to start speaking in tongues. Because the Bible says that when we speak in tongues, 1 Corinthians 17, 14, you are giving thanks well. And so we're going to start thanking God for giving you the Holy Spirit as we pray in tongues. And when we start doing it, I want you to quit thanking Him in English and start thanking Him in tongues. And just start speaking in a language that you don't know. And here's the number one thing. I could tell you a lot, but I'm going to give every one of you a free book that will explain this in more detail. But the number one thing that hindered me and that I found hinders other people, they just wait on the Holy Spirit to make you talk in tongues. And it's not like that. He doesn't take your mouth and make it move. It's very similar to when I spoke tonight. I believe that God spoke through me. I believe that God inspired what I said. But He didn't take my mouth and make it talk. I didn't just open up my mouth and say, Oh God, use me. And then He just supernaturally made me talk. He inspired what I said. I believe He led me to say what I'm saying, but I spoke. That's the reason it came out in Texan. That's the reason it came out with my sense of humor. It was me talking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens when you speak in tongues. In Acts 2-4 it says, They spoke with tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. You have to talk. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't speak in tongues. He doesn't take your mouth and make it work. He just inspires you. He gives you the utterance. You make the sounds and believe that the Holy Spirit is inspiring it. And at first, it'll be so strange to you. People go to thinking, is this God or is this me? But you know what? As you continue to do it, the Holy Spirit will confirm to you that He's the one that's leading you, that God's guiding it, and you'll become very uh, confident in it. And I tell you, it'll be one of the most powerful things that you've ever experienced. So if you're ready, you can speak in tongues right now. Is that a good deal? This was a question. The Bible says believers will speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I'm a believer. And I will speak in tongues. Father, I thank you for all of these. Thank you for these that made you their Lord. We believe that they are a brand new creature. That in their spirit, they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That every one of us up here is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We open up the doors of this temple. We welcome you to come and live on the inside of us. To give us your power. To reveal Jesus. To teach us all things and to lead us into all truth. We want the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we welcome you into our life right now in Jesus' name. We lay hands on you now and say receive the Holy Spirit. We lose this power of the Holy Spirit to come into your life. And Holy Spirit, we just release you through our hands to flow right into them. And thank you that you are taking up residence on the inside of every one of these. That we are now God-possessed. That the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And Father, we thank you for that. Now, let's lift your hands and start thanking God that He gave you the Holy Spirit. He promised that He would. Thank Him that He did it. Believe. Father, we thank You that we do have the Holy Spirit. Thank You, Jesus. Praise God. doesn't matter what you feel like. The Holy Spirit's not a feeling. Just thank Him by faith that His Word is true and that He's filled you. Now, those of you who know how to pray in tongues, let's start praying in tongues right now. And as we speak in tongues, you join in with us and you begin to speak. Remember, He won't force you. You have to make sounds. You have to speak. If you don't know what to say, you can try and say what you hear the person behind you say. But I can promise you, your tongue will be unique to you. It's going to come out differently. You can't say exactly what you hear somebody else say, but it'll get you started. When it comes out different, just keep talking. Don't quit. Just keep going. You can't talk in tongues with your mouth closed. You got to open your mouth. You got to start making sounds. Thank you, Jesus. You can't talk in tongues in English at the same time. Quit speaking in English and just go to speaking. Speak out. Be bold with it. Quit listening to yourself and talk from your heart to God. It may not sound like a real language to you, but it's like a baby. When a baby first talks, it doesn't sound like a real language. It doesn't sound like exact words. But that parent knows what that baby's trying to say. 
It may not sound like mama or daddy to anybody else, but that parent knows what you're saying. You're speaking from your heart. Your heavenly Father is inhabiting your praises right now. The Bible says when you pray in tongues, it's your spirit that prays. You're bypassing your brain. You're bypassing the part that has doubt and fear in it and you're speaking out of your spirit. Just speak. Praise Him. Right now, God is hearing you. You're praying without the doubt, without the limitations. You may not know what you're saying, but your spirit for the first time is able to communicate with God without the limitations of your brain. Man, that's powerful. Thank you, Jesus. Just worship the Lord. Don't shake your head no. Shake it yes. Yes, yes. You receive the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for giving her the Holy Spirit. Man, just worship God. That's the power of the Holy Ghost. Isn't that powerful? You may not feel a thing, but I can guarantee you, you are speaking the hidden wisdom of God out of your mouth. Things are happening in the spirit realm. This is making a difference. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let me have your attention here for just a minute. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you know, whether you spoke in tongues or not, I believe God gave you the Holy Spirit because He promised that He would. I'm not speaking in tongues right now because the Holy Spirit doesn't force me to speak in tongues. I can speak in tongues. I can not speak in tongues. If you didn't speak in tongues, it's not because God didn't give you the Holy Spirit. It's you that's struggling. When I first prayed to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I didn't speak in tongues. It took me three and a half years before I spoke in tongues. But that's because I was a Baptist. But you know what? I finally got it figured out. And I got my questions answered. And I've written them in a book. And there's no reason that you have to take three and a half years. But I, when I finally spoke in tongues, I had received it years before. And I just was afraid to let it out. I didn't understand. And when I finally spoke in tongues, I said, I could have done that three and a half years ago. So every one of you, I believe, receive the Holy Spirit in this ability to speak in tongues. But you do have to understand some things. And that's the reason I've written this book. It will talk about what being born again is. It will explain that to both of you that prayed for that. It also includes the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, talking about how to receive it, talking about reasons why people don't speak in tongues, and it will help you. So I'd like to give every one of you one of these books. And Ashley right here with his hand up, he'll take you in one of these rooms. We've got the books. We want to give them to you. And also, if you have a question or if you need prayer for anything, there's people that will pray with you and help you. So if you would, just follow Ashley. It'll only take a minute or so. He'll give you this book. And uh, we want you to get the full impact of receiving this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's praise God for all of these. Isn't this great? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Man, that's a great way to start your Bible college career. Every year we have people come that didn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's a lot of people that see me on TV 
and they don't realize I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit because I don't scream and shout and have the mannerisms of most Pentecostals, and so they come to this thing under false pretenses. But I do speak in tongues, and I tell you, I, it's absolutely essential. You aren't going to go very far in the Lord without the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life. I'd like to ask our prayer ministers, if you would, our healing school prayer ministers to come up here. And I know that there's people that need prayer. And just like I was talking tonight, I am not the only person that can pray. We have been making disciples. These people have gone through how many weeks worth of training? Eight weeks. And they have been seeing miracles. You saw a student that was over here this morning that had broken a leg and actually took the cast off. You saw the student this morning who died three weeks ago. And the students prayed for him. And he rose from the dead. Man, these people are stronger than horseradish down here. So... I don't want you to think that you have to have me lay hands on you. We are practicing making disciples, and it's the truth that will set you free. And these people can pray for you and see great things happen. So if you need prayer for anything, I'd like to give you an invitation to come right now and let one of our Bible college prayer ministers lay hands on you, and we're going to see miracles happen. We've got people standing here at the aisles, and they're going to direct you towards a prayer minister so that everybody you won't get on just one side Please cooperate with them, and we want to pray with you and help you to receive. So if you need prayer, just get up out of your seat right now. We're going to pray for you, and we're going to believe God for miracles to happen. By using our prayer ministers, we can pray for every person in here and give you the attention that you need. Amen? Praise the Lord. And in just a moment, I'm going to dismiss the rest of you. A lot of them have already dismissed themselves, but... Do we have a fellowship time? Okay, so tonight we don't have anything set up, but uh, in the morning at 7 o'clock, we've got breakfast back here in the student break area, and then we start at 8 o'clock. And you know, I'm aware that there's every year there's people that don't come at 8 o'clock. I think, what am I up, at 11 or something? And there's people that wait until I speak and come. You're going to miss some powerful, powerful ministers. I think Barry's up tomorrow, isn't he? Barry and Stephen, you don't want to miss either one of these guys. I guarantee you, you're going to love them. So get up. Amen. You can sleep after Jesus comes. But this is something special that we're going to have. You're going to miss a blessing if you aren't here in the morning. So we start at 7 for breakfast, and then we have 8 o'clock is when the sessions start. And it's going to be a great, great time. Amen? So if you need prayer, come forward. The rest of you, you're free to go. Thanks for coming. We'll see you in the morning at either 7 o'clock for breakfast or 8 o'clock for the session. Praise the Lord.